0: Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast. I'm delighted to say that on this edition, uh, we're joined by one of the most recognisable voices in cycling broadcaster, commentator, and performer, Ned Bolting. And since his first Tour de France in 2003, Ned has become a fixture of the summer for British cycling fans. And since 2016, he and David Miller have formed a unique commentary partnership for ITV4. And he's done the seemingly impossible by successfully touring a one-man theatre show about cycling, not once, but is it three times now? Then it'll be three times this autumn. Yeah. How was your tour? It was. Um,
1: it was. Oh God, that's always such a hard, hard question to answer because every you know every July has its own narrative and throws up its own sequence of surprises. And the only given is that you you don't you don't know what the unexpected thing is going to be, but you can expect the unexpected. Um, I think in terms of you know if you if you want to kind of reduce it down to the British cycling kind of phenomenon and and I I work for a British broadcaster and my commentary is only available in the UK territories, I think we probably had, with respect to others, the best possible outcome in terms of a good news story because, and I think I said it in the the commentary at the time, just after Geraint Thomas made the most extraordinarily (laughs) wonderful speech on the Champs-Élysées, I think I said in the commentary just goes to show that good guys can win and i think that that's that's a pretty uncontroversial statement because he hasn't got any detractors (laughs) you scratch you know and that's quite unique in the cycling world especially if you clothe yourself in the killer whale jersey of team sky he hasn't got any detractors you would have to search long uh, and hard to find a a dissenting voice Um, that was a very popular win uh, on these shores, and, uh, and just reward in the most ex- astonishing circumstances for a, a career spent thus far in the service of others.
0: You could hear a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief. Um, <laughs> That's but it, one way of putting it, yeah. In particular, probably in the, in Team Sky. They had, notwithstanding the fact that they won yet again, they had a bit of a difficult tour, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I it, I don't know how the internal psyche of Team Sky operates, Ian. I, I would suggest in some ways they've moved into a kind of, you know, d- dimension of thinking that you and I can't understand. Because honestly, I think as a machine, and they are a machine, they simply care about winning. And and PR is a very, very sort of low priority for most of them involved in that. So, that you know, to a certain extent, so long as someone's dressed in yellow and standing on the top step of the podium, uh, job done, isn't it? You know, not sure that's how they imagined it would, Be but they managed the situation pretty well. And, you know, for all that, uh, I think for all that you can justifiably revel in in the, the, you know, the the unexpected beauty of Thomas's success, I think um, huge amounts of credit must go to Chris Froome, who uh, would not have expected that to have been the outcome of July. I think probably struggled with it for at least half of that tour having lost 51 seconds on stage one and never regaining the leadership within his team, let alone the race. Um, I think that would have been a really hard thing for him to have absorbed internally. But once the penny dropped for Froome, that he was still one of the best racers in the race and could still get on the podium and that would still matter both to him and to the team. I think he did himself great credit, actually. Uh, I don't think... I think he trod a... On occasions, a, a line that went perilously close to being a a, a a disloyal teammate, but he stayed the right side of that. Just and in the end, I think that was a, a ride of great uh, character from Chris Froome as well as from Geraint Thomas. And when he can, you know, regardless of what Froome goes on to achieve for the rest of this year, and who knows, he might win the world championships. You never know. I think he can reflect on a 2018 that's been his best year, actually, in many ways, uh, as, a, as a rider and as a character um, to have weathered the Salbutamol storm and come out at the end with a third place in the Tour de France and a, and a Giro d'Italia win. That's not bad.
0: Is this an example of what I think David Miller called uh, in a recent interview, your insufferable optimism that he has to put up with every July? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, no, I think, I think I'm being... I think I'm being honest. Um, I, I, it's easy to say now, you asked me, how was your July? A few weeks have passed and I'm looking back on it as a complete and rounded package. Actually, during the race, all I want, all I want and I think all of any of us want to see is an unexpected and unpredictable race and, and an outcome that changes, you know, potentially from stage to stage and day by day. We got that to a certain extent, although Sky kind of, ground the opposition into a state of paralysis at certain points in the race as well but no I don't think that's optimism I think that's just I think that's just fair dues actually to Chris Froome.
0: Is part of the success of the relationship that you have with um, David Miller on on air is it because you are very different people?
1: Yeah for sure I mean there's no point in you know I think a commentary team has to be light and light and shade and and kind of like black and white to a certain extent And, and maybe there's a bit of good cop, bad cop. There's certainly in our case, in terms of the tactics of the race, the master and the apprentice. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that um, that I have learned. And I think our viewing audience have learned an awful lot from the way that David Miller is able to uh, insightfully explain the hidden workings of, of any given race moment. He doesn't always get it right, by the way, but he adds an interpretation and it's an interpretation on a level that is pretty unique in broadcasting. Quite often. But then again, you know, David, David opts out of other bits of commentating that, that I don't think he would want to go near that, that bit where you, you have to kind of call it move by move and impart some of the excitement of a race, which after all, if you're not feeling um, that thrill of the moment when an, uh, you know, a rider cracks or attacks and the whole race changes again, if you don't feel the thrill of that moment, why are you watching? what what's why why are you into cycling what's the point you know so that's part of the gig as well and, and yeah we we serve different ends there i think
0: away from team sky this yeah. year who else uh impressed you during the the tour where's where's the next winner coming from do you think
1: well i mean where's the next winner coming from probably I mean, from
0: team sky actually,
1: yeah, yeah well it's coming from team sky isn't it at least on the tour de france um who impressed me? Dan Martin had his best ever Tour de France and were it not for the fact that his team is absolutely hopeless in almost every respect and especially in the team time trial. I mean, how they expected, I don't know, whatever. He just lost it on stage three, didn't he, on the team time trial in Chalet. And, uh, but he rode like a man who in another incarnation in a different team could win the Tour de France. Although it's questionable whether whether we will see a pure climber win the Tour de France in the foreseeable future. It seems to have morphed again into the domain of Dumoulin, Froome, Thomas, kind of era, you know, and rog- add, add Roglic into that mix now. Um, so Roglic impressed. Dan Martin, I thought, was brilliant, and uh, I enjoyed the fact that the jury gave him the Super Combativity Award. I think he deserved that. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe was thrilling to watch on almost every occasion. I thought that uh, Dylan Groenewegen proved to be the, you know, I thought he was the fastest man in the pack. Peter Sagan had a typical Peter Sagan kind of a, a tour. Um, other than that, it was a kind of, I think what we lacked a little bit was the the kind of, if you like, the beguiling emergence of some completely unknown riders. I mean, I'm I'm sort of like, I'm feeling around for little bits and pieces of rider that impressed me. I thought Antoine Tolhook from Lotto Jumbo wasn't a rider I knew a great deal about. He looks like a real prospect. Bernal, everyone expected great things from. He's coming through and, you know, will dominate. But, yeah, I... Philippe Roglic, Martin, they're the standout names, aren't they?
0: Do you think Geraint Thomas is going to stay with Sky? It's going to be a tricky one next year, isn't it?
1: I've no idea, and I hesitate to make predictions. I would, I would imagine that he will, though. I mean, OK, so CCC have offered him a contract. Um, he, they'd have to go some to persuade him that that is a, a move worth making. I mean, his salary... Might be one consideration, but then if he goes there, I mean, at the moment they've only got about two and a half riders, and they've gotten, you know, he would have, they'd have to build a team around him for him to even be uh, in consideration for a a Grand Tour victory. I think the more likely outcome, Ian, it would be that Thomas might well think, "I've won the Tour de France. That's not bad in terms of the Tour de France. That will probably do me." Froome can crack on and chase his elusive fifth Tour de France victory next year. And why don't I eye up the potential over the next two or three years um, of of winning all three, the Vuelta and the Giro, and, and be one of those riders who's done that. And I think that's not unrealistic for Thomas, but he can only do it, I think, in the current environment if he rides for Team Sky.
0: In terms of day-to-day life on the Tour, presumably it, it sort of, just dominates the whole of your summer was it 13
1: 15 years you've done now this is 16 the 16th yeah 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 it does i mean it just sits in a big block in the middle of the summer it, it just takes a lot of kind of work to get up to speed before the tour de france and it takes a lot of decompression at the end of it because as you, as you can imagine it's just a uh, particularly now that the commentary job involves all day every day you know that's quite that's quite a you're a broadcaster, Ian. You know how testing that might be. There was I remember as early as about stage six or seven this year, I was so fatigued by the whole process that I looked up at the big monitor that's in front of We've got several monitors, but the main commentary monitor in front of me, and I hallucinated for a split second that I'd seen a, a heavy fall in the middle of the peloton. I hadn't seen it or anything like that, but I simply... There was a flash of something like an LSD flashback, that kind of, and I remember in the commentary going, whoa, whoa, what was that, a fall? And Miller just tapped me and looked at me and went, just shook his head and went, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and I, I'd literally just hallucinated it. So it's quite, it's quite a, it's quite a demanding job, but it is a huge honor, a privilege. I, I particularly looked forward to it this year, and I'm already kind of looking forward to next year's. And it is the building block of everything else that I do, kind of like around, around, you know, whether it's writing books or my one-man show or the other bits and pieces of commentary that I do throughout the year. Everything kind of hinges and depends on on july it still carries a weight way beyond anything else in
0: the cycling world and obviously this year in particular it's going to form the basis of your one-man show for the rest of the year we'll talk about that in in a second but first of all can i ask you about uh jan ulrich because i know he's you know someone that um was around when you started uh on the tour um and also you have spent a bit of time with him you know him and and although the details of exactly what's happened um with him and to him are unclear he's obviously in a very bad place
1: yeah i mean we uh we got wind of quite the severity of uh the situation he found he found himself in actually quite early on during the tour de france when some word came from Mallorca that things were, were not just bad, they were cataclysmically bad for, for Ulrich. Um, so we were we were aware that things were going wrong for him, um, but we didn't see it kind of unravelling as quickly or as dramatically as it appears to have done since then. Um, he's, as you say, he's a, he's a man who figured uh, a great deal in my initiation in the Tour de France in 2003, 4 and 5, before in 2006 he was off the race. Uh, he was... Armstrong's only competitor of any credibility. And uh, to see him struggle with that responsibility and that pressure was actually grim to watch back then. And I found, it, even though I'm a German speaker and he was the big German star and spoke no English, I couldn't get close to him. I couldn't, I tried and tried. I, I think I barely even spoke to him on the record ever. He was very, he, he wore the responsibility of having won the Tour de France so young and riding for that big German team heavily. And so it was a great surprise and a delight, actually, last year to have met him on a couple of occasions, one of which you were at as well in at the Ruler Classic when he came and delighted the audience. I think who were as surprised as I was about how free and easy and relaxed and funny and natural he was uh, and seemed a man very much at peace with himself. And I met him again in the spring of the previous year, actually, at the Mallorca six, six day sort of event um, where he only recently relocated and he looked a very settled and happy individual he had his wife and kids along with him on that occasion but appearances are deceptive and um that generation of if you like nuclear or industrial dopers for which Ulrich has, um uh, continues to be a kind of he, he continues to almost be a flag bearer in the sense that, you know, in, in, at least in the eyes of the German sporting public, he was the worst of the worst. And he has been shunned rather unfairly to the exclusion of others who seem to have got away with much less baggage attached. And I think the thing that, you know, what's happened to Ulrich, and by the way, when we say this, we shouldn't uh, in any way ignore the fact that the allegations against him are extremely serious and that the violence that appears to have been done to other individuals there appears to be serious and there are other victims in this case not just ulrich
0: yeah we should say that he's accused of assaulting a woman correct clearly uh, she is the the principal victim sh- but correct. it's also clear that he absolutely correct. that's worth needs help as well yeah
1: but since this is a cycling podcast and we're talking about setting context the um the, th- the fact that always need you know i think david miller's quite good about this that needs stressing and remembering is that doping is uh It's not just something that skews a sporting product. It's an addiction, not just a a chemical addiction. It's an an addictive way of life. So there are riders who were addicted to doping. They couldn't conceive of not doping. And that that addictive personality is something, I think, that that is very easily transferable into other parts, other walks of life. And it clearly is, is figures, I think, massively in what's happened to Jan Ulrich. Um, and th- to say there's no support mechanism is an understatement. There is nothing out there. You know, and Ulrich now needs, I think, those, those riders who rode with him and those uh, people to stand up, get in contact and to be of some assistance.
0: Because presumably his expectation as a very successful sportsman was that he was going to retire, he was going to have a very successful and fated uh, retirement. Other people who doped have had that. Um, but that hasn't happened with him in, in particular, and that must have been a, 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 particular, a particular strain.
1: Yeah, and obviously he, he also hasn't found that thing that might have just taken him away from the cycling milieu. You know, that would have been the obvious answer for Ulrich. Well, listen, the Germans are never going to forgive me, so the cycling world is never going to... I have to take whatever financial gain I've mo- and just move on and, and do something else and, and not a piece. So he's always kind of, I think, struggled with letting go of cycling. Um, w- which would have been the smart thing to do. But it's easier said than done, isn't it?
0: Your one-man tour, uh, it has been called Bicology. Yeah. This year, it's called the Tour de Neve. I know. Why?
1: Well, <laughs> well, it's the worst title in the world, but it kind of do- it's, it does what it says on the tin, really. It's, it's the, you know, I've taken the model from the Tour de Yorkshire, which is not a great model to have taken. And I've just put my name on the end. Um, because, I, I you know, you have about... In in the internet age, I think you have about two and a half seconds to grab people's attention and tell people what it is. And I think that, that kind of like does as as close as I can to the job for me. So and is it focused on the Tour de France? It is. The, the last show I did, uh, the first half of it was about kind of everyday cycling. And I think uh, I, I was particularly fond of that material, but I think what people really wanted to see was what I did in the second half more where I, I turned my attention to the Tour de France. So this year... I've decided absolutely to hone in stage by stage. So on stage, for example, there's a map of France that lights up as we move around the country. Um, There is a lot of footage that I filmed from behind the scenes and bits and pieces of life on the road. And I'm going to weave together with huge diversions into French science fiction from the 1940s, um, cathedral building from the 13th century and various other bits and pieces as we kind of like, the narrative flows through, but from this very, very odd perspective of how we experienced it and how we relive it. So uh, I want to have a lot of fun with it because that's the whole point. It's entertainment. um, But I think also as the clouds draw over and uh, summer's a forgotten thing and the autumn draws in, this is a chance to kind of bathe in July sunshine and to remember those little bits of the headline acts for sure, but also those little bits of, forgotten detail that will kind of like remind you about july and think god yeah it was a bit special because it's always a bit special even an average edition is a bit special so are you writing it at the moment i am and how's that going uh, it's funny because i've 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 written four or five books now and and that's a that's that's a process where you you write stuff and then you kind of put it to one side and you look at it again in seven days on the paper and you think either that needs work or you think no that's that's kind of like about right when you're writing material that you've got to deliver in front of a live audience, you have absolutely no idea, in whether it's going to work or not before you get up on stage and do it. So there's a preview night coming up uh, in uh, September. I can't remember the date off the top of my head. I'm going to say it's the 10th, but that sounds about right. Second rest day of the welter. Second rest day of the welter. That's, that's, that's the only way I know. It's the second rest day of the welter. I'm doing a show in South London, in um, South Norwood, uh at the stanley halls where i'm actually going to try out this material for the first time with the proviso that you can chuck tomatoes at me and you know just say that that bit ain't going to work i did that for my last couple of shows it's actually it's a lot of fun because you just go into it and i think the audience forgive you before you've even started um but no there's lots of music uh lots of music actually in this lots of video content both from the tour and behind the scenes and hopefully lots of gags as well yeah
0: and well audience uh- audience participation so there you will be taking questions
1: uh well you know not entirely sure to what extent we'll be doing that a little bit i mean there's there'll be heckling for sure because that's been part of every tour that i've done which is always a lot of fun because it's a live theatrical experience that's kind of that's that's what makes it kind of fun for everybody i hope um so will I be taking questions? Yeah, there'll be an element to that. Although there were in the past kind of couple of shows, I've, I've had big audience participation sort of set piece moments, which I always find pretty painful, actually, <laughs> because I always dread that moment when you're sitting in the audience. And, and then there's that moment where someone's encouraged to come out and do something on stage. I always feel that's very painfully embarrassing for all concerned. So I've kind of strimmed that down and we won't be going, going that route to, into, into too much. So I think it's going to be quite an immersive experience. And, um, and it ends with a big musical number I'll just leave it at that
0: a musical number
1: a musical number the last one the last one ended with Bradley Wiggins the musical um, but uh, but we've moved on from that and we've upgraded
0: yeah and are you touring pretty much the whole country or what
1: going to the- Scotland Going, doing a couple of dates in Scotland in Edinburgh and Arbroath <laughs> I've no idea why we're going to Arbroath but I'm looking forward to it um, not going to Wales this year, because obviously that would have been stupid, because a Welshman won the, the, the Tour de France this year. Um, went to Wales last year. So, But what I have learned from building a tour, and it's not me that chooses the dates, right? A production company does that for me. Is that whichever bit of the country you don't go to, you get an absolute stream of online abuse. So I apologise to East Anglia and Wales on this particular occasion, doing a lot of dates around the rest of England, And we're going to Scotland as well, and not Northern Ireland, for which I apologise. But twenty-one dates in total, which is like a grand tour in itself.
0: And is there a one sort of venue or one particular place where you you get a really good reception?
1: There's there's one there's a very special theatre in Leeds um, where this will be the third consecutive year I've gone back. Um, and it's the only venue we've gone to every time. And I, it's kind of like first on my list. I say, no, we must go there. It's called the City Varieties in Leeds. Is
0: that what they used to do, the
1: good old Correct. Guys? And it's been, it's exactly, it's an old music hall, seats 500, which is just bang on for, for this show. So most of the venues are about 500 people. Um, and it sells out like that because Yorkshire invented the Tour de France. Of course. Um And they're well into it. And I've got a feeling now that we're getting kind of repeat people coming back and back. So there's a real sort of feeling of familiarity with that place. And it's been beautifully refurbished. It's got that kind of intimate feeling. And uh, yeah, it's very special. But we're doing three, four dates in Yorkshire this this year. I think Scarborough, Ilkley, Cleckheaton. I have to look that up on a map. And Leeds. Know, it's the International Centre of Cycling. What, Cleckheaton?
0: No, Lee, uh, Yorkshire. <laughs> Yorkshire, of course it is. Of course it is, yeah. Okay, Ned, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for your time and uh, good luck with the tour. Good luck with both tours. Thank you very much, Ian. Cheers. And you can also see Ned Bolting at the Ruler Classic in London in November. Three days of exhibitions, interviews and discussions Confirmed guests so far. Include Eddie Merck's Paolo Bettini, Sean Kelly, Lizzie Deanian, and UCI President David Lapartien. November the 1st to the 3rd, all details and tickets on rulerclassic.cc. So now it's time to uh, catch up with uh, Ruler's desire, Stuart Clapp. Stuart, you've been uh, making some predictions about what colours might be in in cycle wear uh, over the next year or so.
2: Yes, but they are, I suppose, less like Mystic Meg, I've had a little bit more of an insight because I've actually seen the future. Unlike Mystic Meg, um, I've I've seen a few of the catalogues and things for next year, and some of the colourways people are doing. It's all about army green at the moment. What's for the khaki? Yeah, yeah, army green or olive. In fact, I've noticed that nobody's actually calling it the same same thing. Military green or whatever. There's there's already been there's been a little bit that's already come through. In fact, last slightly ahead of time, actually, um, Brian Hull, who's up. Uh, Next for twelve sixteen, he did a he did an army green jacket, but that's because he's obsessed with you know sort of U boat captains and things like this. Um, but uh, it started to come in, and I've I the reason why I've been looking at it is because we're shooting for eighteen seven, which we're not going to go into because the, you should only just be receiving eighteen six right now. So eighteen seven is the cyclocross shoot, but that's when I've noticed it because more of the catalogs and stuff that's coming out for next year. So you've got you had that a released an octal in military green h j c did a helmet in military green there's been a few like chapter three did did a their Girona kit in that sort of army green color and um yeah, there appears to be quite a lot of it in people's ranges for next year. How do you feel about that?
0: I'm not convinced by khaki or military green or whatever you call it as a cycling colour.
2: No, we've had this conversation before, and uh, I quite like it because it's it's you know it's a bit it's a bit different. But I I'm well aware that there are better options uh, for being seen on the road. That something that is designed so you aren't seen. Um, yeah, hedgerows, that could, could be a bit of a problem when you blend into them.
0: It's like those people you see wearing uh, city camouflage, the sort of grey and white city camouflage. You kind of think, well, it looks cool, but if you ever end up in court with a driver who's knocked you off, he will reasonably be able to claim that he didn't see you.
2: They'll claim that anyway, regardless of what you wear. Anyway, but, um, yeah, I know I know what you mean. It's um, Yeah, it, they're not just in the jungle, they are the jungle. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it, it wouldn't. You need you need to stand out a little bit. Give give them a chance, I suppose. But um, but I like it. I think it's a cool color.
0: And you're looking for a new bike as well.
2: Ah uh, yeah, I've been saying that for about four years. But the thing is, I've I've got I've got commitment issues. I used to work for the distributor for Cervelo over in the UK a few years back, and I suppose for about eight or nine years now, I've I've had I've had Cervelos. I like carbon. It's fast and everything else, you know, it's light. But the trouble is, I don't know. I'm I, I'm not as fit as I used to be, and I think I could get away with an aero bike and stuff then. But um, I'm not I'm not sure if it's me anymore. I don't I don't know. But the thing is, I don't know whether I don't know whether I want steel now. And if I want steel, do I just just go the full whole hog in uh, and get something really fancy? I think I've made up my mind and then, and then I haven't, but then this, this, is the, this is the problem where I'm at. It's like, so that's frame material. Then I've got to think, right, do I want discs? It's got to be discs now, isn't it? Or calipers are easy, but discs are the future. I future-proofed it there, haven't I, with that? And then group sets. Well, do I want to stay mechanical? Do I want to have DI2? Do I want ETAP? Having said all this, I, uh, the, everyone will know what the itch of wanting a new bike is. Um, so I've ordered a fixie for the winter.
0: So you've gone for a really basic frame and no gears at all?
2: I've gone for an aluminium frame and I've got no gears, yeah.
0: Now I bet you'd like to hear what our uh, uh, roving correspondent, Brian Holm, DS of Quickstep, uh, thinks about cycling clothes. He's got some opinion.
2: He has got a lot of opinions and if Brian's talking, I'm listening.
0: Let's hear his theme tune first.
3: You have to keep in mind, uh, cycling is getting bigger and bigger, and uh, you have to find the reason. You say it's a new golf, but I think uh, my generation was basically black beep shorts, white socks, in wool. It was quite boring, wasn't it? There was a lot of rules. Uh, you couldn't have a beard, you couldn't have a tattoo, you couldn't have, you couldn't have an earring. Nowadays, people straight up We can discuss. Yeah, I mean, taste is very, very different. How you look like, I mean you can't really say what's wrong or right but of course everybody have an opinion about it and uh, I think it's really starting you know people looking different you know finding the old stars it's probably about 03 04 Rafa is coming in was called Simon he realized something wrong in cycling we can make it big, bigger and he's starting you know Using models with tattoos and uh, earrings, and so forth. so so it's from the old-fashioned sport. It's really changing, and I think that attracts so much more people today, because my old, old generation you wouldn't have young normal kids coming in. You would look at it. You know, there was a lot of rules how you could do, what you couldn't do, and nowadays also a lot of rules. We make it up. Most of it is, of course, bullshit, <laughs> but like it's quite funny. All the thing how how you dress, and of course somehow you can always see who's a real cyclist and who's a tourist. I mean, you can spot a tourist like from one kilometer. You can see it on his bike. You can see he got the spacers on his stem probably way too high. He'd been done some sort of bike fitting, bike fitters who normally don't have a clue about bicycles, to be honest. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you can see the whole way of the, the dress, you know, is a proper cyclist or a tourist. But, but it's very good for cycling. You can dress very sequ- uh, different. Now you have a Different colors of socks now in my generation was only white socks. If you didn't wear white socks, they would take you out of the race. So it's really moving forward now with the, with the, with, with the, with the closing. And I think in, when you ride in Copenhagen, you will see like on a Sunday, like hundreds of cyclists and everybody really really care about the, the closing
0: Brian Holm, who's also going to be at the Ruler Classic in November, along with, just confirmed, Sir Bradley Wiggins, who'll be paying tribute to one of his cycling heroes, Eddie Merckx. Tickets still available, but selling fast. Thanks for listening.